that happened some time ago in New York City. A couple set up a booth there in the middle of the city, on the sidewalk, and they invited people, anyone, to come by to the booth and make confession. I don't know what the religious background was. I don't think they advertised that really so much as they simply advertised anyone who wanted to come by. You can make an anonymous confession here. You can write it down and presumably, I believe they communicated the idea that we'll pray for you. They were amazed at how many people stopped. Some people would write down something silly. A few did. Some made a bit of a joke out of it. But most of the confessions seemed to be pretty serious. They would confess something, what we might think is relatively minor, a misspoken word or some sort of minor deed. Some confessed something bigger, though. But one of the things that they, they found just through that experience in a very secular place, you know, New York City, that so many people, even in the busyness of that kind of world, so many people felt the need to unburden themselves in some sense of something they'd been struggling with. Taking the time to stop and get a pencil and write it down and hand it to the person there and walk, and walk on. <clears throat> I think that reflects something about us. I think it reflects something about this instinct that we've got within us all. That there's this, there's this need within us to confess. This need to let someone know about a struggle that we've got. Something we've done. Some sort of struggle, some sort of sin, some sort of temptation. We, we, we want to bear our souls, so to speak. Sometime between the time of David and the time when the Psalms were fully collected, someone, and we believe, I think most people believe it to be an accurate superscript that they wrote, they put at the top of Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Very simple, isn't it? Just a superscript. David didn't write that, by the way. It was put in there sometime later. But most scholars who study the language and study the various collection of psalms, they believe that that's actually an accurate description of the setting in which this psalm was written. That David did after Nathan came to him. He sat down with, we suspect, tears in his eyes, tears on his cheeks. And he took a scroll, he took a pen, and he poured out his heart to God. And when we read this, we get a glimpse into the soul of David, don't we? We read just a portion of it a few minutes ago, but we, we get a glimpse into the heart and soul of David. And I think that's why Psalm 51 is one of the most famous of all the psalms. I, certainly Psalm 23 would have to go down as the most oft-quoted, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, right? But after that one, my guess is Psalm 51 is the most often read, the most often quoted psalm of all 150 of them, second to Psalm 23. And I think that's why, I think the reason is because we, we can relate to Psalm 51. Maybe not because we've committed the same sins as David, but because we felt some of the same feelings as David. And we see in these words this urgent instinct, this, this need, this craving for a context in which we might let it be known 
We're struggling. We're hurting. We need more than anything, more than anything, to be absolved by God Himself. We need to be forgiven. We need to know that we're okay, that, that the sins that we've committed, that God won't hold them against us, that God will give us a clean slate. We need more than anything to know that. Everything else can be right in, the, in our lives, you know? We, we, can, we can be living, the, from all external superficial appearances, we can be living a good life, enough money, a nice place to live, a nice car to drive, a job that's stable, good health. But if on the inside we long for forgiveness, then we recognize that this, this internal struggle can, can cause us to be miserable, even though, according to any external marker, life would be great. You probably already know, maybe you do. If you don't, that's fine. I want to tell you about it just for a second. The context of the song. <clears throat> You know about some of the exploits of David. People know about the story of David and Goliath. We know that earlier than that, God selected David of all David's brothers. He had a lot of brothers. He was the youngest. He had some older brothers, and they physically, and it certainly from a superficial perspective, played the part better than David. They looked like the future king of Israel. But God looked over all the brothers, and he selected the youngest one, a little shepherd from Jesse's house, a boy named David. He said this, Man after God's, my own heart, man after my own heart, he's going to be the next king of Israel. And we know about David and Goliath, and we know the song they sang about David. He killed his ten thousands, and Saul killed his thousands. We know that David was the leader of the army of Israel, and that through David, God expanded the borders of the kingdom. That David was successful. Again, according to any superficial marker, David was doing so very well. In fact, after he had become king, he had done so well. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah had been united. They were one kingdom under the leadership of David. And everything seemed to be so good. But then there came that afternoon when David looked down from his roof and he saw the young lady bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He called for her. His armies were off fighting David's battles. They were sleeping in tents. They were risking their lives every day while David reclined on the rooftop of the palace that afternoon. David slept with Bathsheba. Her husband was one of the ones in those tents fighting David's battles. But David was sleeping with her while her husband was sleeping in tents. She became pregnant. And David knew he had done wrong. In his heart, he knew he had done wrong. He tried everything he could do to cover it up. He called her husband from the battlefield to the palace, hoping that Uriah would go home and be with his wife. And then nobody would know that it wasn't Uriah's child. But Uriah was too noble for that. How can I go home and sleep at home and my fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents? He wouldn't do it. David got him drunk, hoping that inebriated Uriah would then relax his standards a bit go home, but he wasn't even drunk. So David turned to plan C, and plan C was he wrote a quick note to Joab the commander and said essentially, put Uriah somewhere in the battle where he doesn't make it out. It worked. It worked. Uriah got up, 
close to the walls of the city they were attacking. The armies withdrew from him, apparently, leaving Uriah exposed, killed by the archers from the city walls, perhaps. But Uriah died. doesn't really matter how. At least according to David's standard, at that particular moment, it didn't matter how, as long as the man is gone. And David, I want to say David relaxed. I don't really think he did. I don't really want to say that he rested because I don't think he rested. I think he lay awake at night. I think he had a hard time sleeping because he knew what he had done. The last verse, we talked briefly about this a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night, but the last verse of 2 Samuel 11 tells the story quite well. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had gotten away from it. Hardly anyone knew about his private matters. He had taken Bathsheba to be his wife. She's in this palace, so nobody would question when exactly conception occurred, right? Everything's okay. But God knew about it, and God was very displeased with his king. And so he sent the preacher Nathan to David, and David and Nathan told him the story about a rich man who had many lambs and flocks, and a poor man who had only one little ewe lamb, and the rich man had a guest, and instead of taking one of his many, he took the little ewe lamb of his neighbor, and he killed it, dressed it, fed it to his guest. The only little ewe lamb, the only lamb of his poor neighbor, the, the one he, he, he loved that lamb. It was special to him, and he stole it and killed it and fed it as a meal to his guest instead of, instead of taking one of his many. So that was the story that Nathan told David, and David was convicted with this righteous indignation and said, the man that has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to him 400%. David knew very well that the law said if you steal a lamb, a cow, something from your neighbor, you restore four for the one you took. And that's what David said here. He should restore four lambs for the little one that he took. David had conveniently forgotten what the law said about adultery. But he knew very well what it said about theft. It's amazing how... Sometimes we can be so blinded by our own sins. We can see others quite well, but we don't see ours so clearly. And you remember Nathan's response to David. He said, David, I still remember the King James Version of this one, right? This one that comes to mind. David, thou art the man. Remember that? You're the man. You are the man. You're the one, David. How dare you, essentially, is what Nathan said. How dare you become so self-righteous when you know very well what you've done. Now, if I understand this right, you know, David said at that time, this is 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned, I have sinned, and I believe if, we, if, we've, if we've done this properly, at some point, maybe that night, I don't know, after Nathan left, maybe that afternoon, I think probably pretty quickly, David sat down in his private study and he took out a scroll and he wrote this. And, you know, I, I took a lot of time setting this up because I think it's important for us to understand what David is experiencing when he sits down and he writes this song. His heart is broken. And there's something pretty about a broken heart. Because it is a broken heart God can use 
A proud heart, a heart that says, you know, I'm pretty good. A heart that says, at least I'm not like, a a heart that says, God's sort of lucky to have me on his side. At least I'm not like this tax collector. I give, I worship, I go to a good church, I sit on my assigned pew every week. Not like those sinners, you know. See, I think David was experiencing some of that prior to this, but when Nathan convicted him, David became guilty, and his heart was torn. And he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I think there's several things we learn about from, from David's story here, from David's confession. We learn something about how we ought to respond to our own sin because it's so easy, it's so easy to get comfortable with our transgressions, to compare ourselves to others. At least I didn't do that. Or at least I'm not like him or her. And we forget what it ought to do to us when we realize that we have broken covenant. We've broken the trust. We've broken this relationship we've got with our Creator. You know, some some of the things I think that that we walk away from this with, we, we, we see that David... This is what he did. He, he called it what it was. He, he didn't mince words. And that's one of the beautiful things about this psalm. You don't see any equivocation here, do you? You don't see David kind of, I don't know, dancing around it. Trying to soften it a little bit. In fact, if you look in, starting at verse, well, it's all over the place. Verse, verse 1. Notice the different words he uses. And they have slightly different nuances, but together they paint this image of David's realization that what he had done was an abomination in the sight of his God. He he knew that. Verse 1, the word transgressions. Verse 2, the word sin. Verse 3, the word transgressions. Verse 4, the word sin. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. Verse 9, the word iniquities. In verse 14, well, verse 13, transgressors. Verse 14, blood guiltiness. Do you see what David is doing? And I'm so often tempted to halfway confess my sins to God. Lord, forgive my indiscretion. Or even maybe my shortcoming. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? I made a bad choice. I, 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 didn't, I didn't do exactly what I should have done. I, I did something that I should not have done. There are all sorts of ways of playing with the words here, right? We can kind of dance around it. David didn't do that. You know, we've talked about this before at times. David's predecessor was King Saul. If you remember some of the stories about Saul, Saul did some pretty bad things. He didn't trust in the Lord. He... he uh, disobeyed God with reference to offering a sacrifice. He, he didn't completely fulfill 
God's commandment in a certain battle. Uh, I, I think I can make a really good case, though, that what David did is a whole lot worse than what Saul did. I, at, at least if we're comparing sins, which I don't know if we should compare sins or not, but I don't know. You look at David's life, you look at Saul's life, you look at what Saul done, you look at what David had, what Saul had done and what David had done, and you think, man, both messed up pretty badly. Why does David, why is David treated differently from Saul? God said, Saul, the kingdom is no longer yours. To David, he, he kept him on the throne. He, he didn't take the kingdom away from him. Jesus is still called the son of David. Why? Why the difference? Is one sin worse than the other? Saul sins worse than David's? I don't think they were. The difference, it seems to me, is the psalm. David said, I've sinned. Now Saul said something like that. He sort of apologized. He sort of repented. But he didn't really repent. He said, forgive me, but, but, but make sure that I look okay in front of the people. He said, forgive me, but his, his, his confessions were always qualified. David's weren't. This is why I think we have David set before us as someone whose heart whose heart was different from Saul's. It was broken. And I think that's a pretty, uh, I know that's a pretty big deal right there. The difference between people whose lives ultimately will be blessed in an internal sense by God and those that won't isn't that the former group somehow lives this life that's free of sin. But the difference is, when they sin, one heart can be broken and the other will just make excuses. David called it what it was. I have transgressed, I have sinned, I have committed iniquity, I know that I am guilty. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. He didn't blame it on his kingdom. He didn't blame it on God. He didn't blame it on, I've got so much pressure. I'm so stressed out. i got all these responsibilities. Surely, surely, you can excuse this. Any other king in the ancient Near Eastern world would have his pick of women in the kingdom. Why don't you just allow me this one little indiscretion? He didn't do that. That's what we got to do. Maybe we're not talking about murder or adultery. We might be talking about, well, I don't know. I suppose we ought to fill in our own individual blanks, right? Just don't make excuses. Call it what it is. It is iniquity, which is this idea of twisting. It is transgressing, which is distorting. It is sin, which is missing the mark. It has all these nuances of these different words. But the, but the image that David portrays here is... I knew what I should have done, and I disobeyed my Creator. No excuses. Call it what it is. Take personal responsibility. I guess I talked about that pretty much already. Call it what it was. There, there's a lot of, there are, are a lot of first-person pronouns in this text. You notice that? Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions, verse 1. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. You notice that? He, he, he didn't try to escape responsibility for this. Isn't this one of the primary steps on the path to healing is saying, it is I It's not my wife's fault, my husband's fault, it's not my job's fault, it's not my church's fault, it's not my preacher's fault, my elder's fault, my parents' fault, my my genetic fault, it's not my environment's fault. Against you and you only have I sinned. See, we are tempted in in our humanness to do what Adam and Eve did. Adam said, this woman that you gave me, right? (coughs) And we've been making excuses ever since. But David knew. David knew. He knew who God was. He knew what he had done. He knew how God would respond to that that sort of blame shifting. It doesn't work well with God. That story I alluded to earlier, the Pharisee and the tax collector who both went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee spent most of his time bragging on himself and how he was better than that measly, dishonest, good-for-nothing tax collector. And all that tax collector did is God said, he said, God, be merciful to me. Remember? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which of them, Jesus said, this is Luke 18, which of them walked away from the temple that day justified? And of course, we know the answer to that. David did that a long time before the tax collector did. He approached the throne of God and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He took personal responsibility. And so in our own walks, and every one of us in this room, we... We struggle with this at times. Yes, I lost my temper, but if you only knew those people. Yes, I committed the sin of lust, but I am dealing with this or that. Yes, I sometimes gossip, but at least I don't. You see, In a a relationship with God, when we truly know God, when we're truly in fellowship with God, we know God and we know know that our sins are our sins. They're not not somehow the the product of the the environment or, or the culture. David is painting a picture here that is heart wrenching, it's convicting. Take personal responsibility, ask God to forgive us. You know, that's pretty basic. I guess everybody in this room already knows it. But when we read this psalm, we're just, just overwhelmed with, with what David does here. He says, verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than the snow. Just as hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from your presence, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Just on and on. These images that, Paul, that, uh, that David is using, this of, of blotting out, of purging me with hyssop. You know, wash me and make me whiter than snow. It's this image, Lord, forgive me. Don't hold this against me. And the Bible uses a lot of images for that forgiveness. Forgiveness means to send away. 
the idea of blotting out, just wiping it out. I love other images in the Psalms of cast them behind your back so that you don't see them anymore. Separate me from my sins as far as the east is from the west. Cast them into the depths of the sea. All these images. And God, God of course, God, of course, is willing to do that. This psalm is going to end on an upward note, an upward trajectory. Because what we see here is David's pouring out his heart to God. At the end of it, verse 13, he commits himself to use his past failure for future ministry. And I, and I think it's interesting how this goes. The first part of the psalm, David is crying out, he's weeping, he's, he's just begging God. And, and then at the end of, this, end of this, verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, I'm going to take this experience and I'm going to use it to help me to shape, to help me to bless others. You're going to give me forgiveness and I'm going to use that forgiveness. I'm going to use that experience so that I might influence others for good. I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to, to, to you. Once you deliver me, verse 14, from blood guiltiness, the last part of verse 14, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I'm going to share the good news. I'm going to worship you, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I'm going to bless others because I've been blessed by God. I'm going to forgive others because I've been forgiven by God. I'm going to share the good news because the good news has cleansed me. You see this? We use our past failures for future ministry. That's what, that's what the psalm is teaching us. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful thing? You know, we come here today to share the gospel, to live, to worship, to bless God because of what He's done for us in Christ. We celebrate communion. We honor the one who created us, and it's all because of that cross, because of the blood Jesus shed, because of the tomb that was empty on Sunday, and because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ at God's right hand, hand even now, the one who is constantly interceding for us. We praise him this morning because we know that God answered this psalm, and he's still answering it today. He's still answering it today. For us today, we have sins. There's not a single one of us who's old enough, who's mature enough to understand what we're talking about right now. Not a single one of us who's not guilty in the same sense as David was guilty. Guilty of sin. Whether it's of a spoken nature, if it's a sexual sin, if it's a, of a, using our words in sinful ways, if it's the sins of neglect, sins of omission, this sense of just living lives that aren't what they ought to be. We're in the same situation as David. But aren't you thankful? We've got something that David even wasn't fully aware of at the time. You know? We've got the cross. We can, David, in some sense, through a, through a cloud perhaps, could see something, someone who was coming. But today we look back on the cross and we know that in response to David's psalm, we pray the same psalm today. God answers that psalm and he says, you are forgiven. At the end of this, we'll close with this, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That was true in David's day, it's true today. God is a God who looks down at our hearts. 
And if they're broken, if they're broken, if they're contrite, that kind of heart is an offering to God, it's a sacrifice to God. It's what God wants more than anything. In fact, more than He wants our songs and our prayers and our worship this morning, more than that, God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts to be His. He wants our hearts to be broken when we sin so that He can take us in our brokenness and He can mend us and shape us and He can heal us and bring us back into fellowship with Him. You know, there's a sense in which we cannot fully enjoy the relationship with God as it ought to be unless we first fall into our knees in brokenness and said, Oh God, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities. Purge me with hyssop. Clean me. Blot out my transgressions. And God's response to that is the cross. And by the blood of Christ, He washes us free completely. See, there's that need we all have, just as illustrated in the streets of New York City, whether we're secular or religious. I think we all recognize a need within us, some sort of need, some sort of innate need. When we get old enough and we recognize, we live with a sense of incompleteness and we know there's something I need. And we all believe, as Christians, we believe that that need is you need to throw your sins down at the foot of the cross and to accept the forgiveness that God offers in the Son of God. So if you're here today as someone who's not in Christ, not a Christian, but you've come to the point in your life where you're convicted of your sins, you've, you're convicted that your life has, has not been that which God created you to live, and you want to come and make that right and let God make it right today, we invite you to come to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Put Him on in baptism. That baptism symbolically, it represents that cleansing of sin that is given only at the cross. What a beautiful thing that would be, and we would be thrilled for you to let us join with you today as you're baptized into Jesus for the forgiveness of all of your sins that you may receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit. What a beautiful thing. Uh, maybe today there, there's someone here who's, who's done that, but your life has not been lived lately consistently with the will of God, and you've rebelled against Him, and you want to come back home to Him today. Beautiful thing about this, Psalm 51. It's a, in some ways a heart-wrenching psalm, but what we know is this. God is a God who desperately wants to forgive, and He answers this psalm when we ask it, when we pray it. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come. Let's stand. Let's sing the song now.